I would like to welcome you to Franciscan University for this evening's event entitled The Synod on the Family Addressing the Instrumentum Laboris. We are honored to have with us His Eminence Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, who will be providing a keynote address. His Eminence's address will be followed by some very brief words by each of our panelists on the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the draft or working document that the bishops will be using as a basis for deliberation at the upcoming Synod in October. We shall end the evening with an opportunity for questions from the audience. At this time, I would like to invite Father Sean Sheridan, TOR, President of Franciscan University, to the stage, who will lead us in prayer and introduce our very special keynote speaker for this evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and Cardinal Burke. <laughs> As the Synod Fathers prepared for October's discussion on the Synod of the Family and Marriage, Pope Francis invited consultation from the entire church on the issues pertaining to marriage and family, issues that are of great significance in our world today. To help the Synod Fathers prepare, here in the Diocese of Steubenville, our local shepherd, Most Reverend Jeffrey Monforton, invited Franciscan University and members of this diocesan church to respond to the questions posed in the lineamenta. We are grateful to the Holy Father and Bishop Monforton for having given us the opportunity to assist with these preparations. Franciscan University also offered its support for the Episcopal representatives of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops who will participate in the Synod. Archbishop Joseph Kurtz of the Archdiocese of Louisville, President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Cardinal Daniel DiNardo of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, Vice President of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Archbishop Jose Gomez of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and Archbishop Charles Chaput of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. This evening, we will continue to engage the discussion initiated by Pope Francis, and I am glad to introduce His Eminence, Raymond Cardinal Leo Burke, who will begin tonight's conversation. Before I introduce Cardinal Burke, however, I want to open our discussion with the prayer that Pope Francis has released, inviting us all to pray for this synod that is going to be occurring next month. It's a prayer to the Holy Family. And so I invite us all to pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, in you we contemplate the splendor of true love. To you we turn with trust. Holy Family of Nazareth, grant that our families too may be places of communion and prayer, authentic schools of the gospel and small domestic churches. Holy Family of Nazareth, may families never again experience violence, rejection, and division. May all who have been hurt or scandalized 
find ready comfort and healing. Holy Family of Nazareth, may the approaching synod of bishops make us once more mindful of the sacredness and inviolability of the family and its beauty in God's plan. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph graciously hear our prayer. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In 1948, Raymond Leo Burke was born in Richland Center, Wisconsin, the youngest of six children. He began his priestly formation as a high school student at Holy Cross Seminary in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He studied philosophy at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. In 1975, he was ordained to the priesthood by blessed Pope Paul VI at St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. In 1984, he also obtained a doctorate in canon law from the Pontifical Gregorian University. He then served as moderator of the Curia and vice chancellor of the Diocese of La Crosse in Wisconsin. In 1989, he was appointed defender of the bond of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatory in Rome. In 1995, St. John Paul II ordained him as Bishop of La Crosse. Following nine years of service as Bishop of La Crosse, Bishop Burke was named Archbishop of St. Louis by St. John Paul II and installed in January 2004. In 2008, Pope Benedict XVI appointed Archbishop Burke as Prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura. Pope Benedict also elevated him to the College of Cardinals on November the 20th, 2010. A priest for 40 years, a bishop for 20 years, and a cardinal for nearly five years, His Eminence Cardinal Burke is known as one of the world's leading experts on canon law and was recently appointed by Pope Francis as Cardinal Patronus of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, an international Catholic organization committed to serving the sick and poor and defending the faith. Please join me in thanking His Eminence for his service to the church and in welcoming him to Franciscan University. Thank you very much. Thank you. It pleases me very much to come once again to Franciscan University of Steubenville, for which I have the greatest esteem. My presence, I hope, will be some small confirmation of the fidelity, generosity, and excellence of Franciscan University in carrying out the challenging apostolate of Catholic higher education in our time. I thank in particular Father Sean Sheridan, 
for the invitation to give the keynote address at this evening's symposium to discuss what is pop popularly called the Synod on the Family. I thank, too, all who have assisted me so that I was able to celebrate in the morning the Pontifical High Mass for the Feast of the, of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary at St. Peter Church and to take part in this evening's symposium. The fundamental, indeed critical, importance of the subject of our symposium should be evident to all. Regarding Christian marriage and the family, Pope St. John Paul II in his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Familiaris Consortio, declared that the Christian family, in fact, is the first community called to announce the gospel to the human person during growth and to bring him or her through a progressive education and catechesis to full human and Christian maturity. Noting the multiple and grievous attacks on marriage and the family in our time, Pope John Paul II stressed the importance of witnessing to the truth about marriage and the family so that the family may evangelize the whole of society. He further declared, at a moment of history, in which the family is the object of numerous forces that seek to destroy it or, or in some way to deform it, and aware that the well-being of society and her own good are intimately tied to the good of the family, the Church perceives in a more urgent and compelling way her mission of proclaiming to all people the plan of God for marriage and the family ensuring their full vitality and human and Christian development, and thus contributing to the renewal of society and of the people of God. In the present moment, when the attacks on matrimony and on the family, even within the church, seem the most ferocious, it is the church who must show to the whole of society the truth in all its richness, and therefore the beauty and the goodness of marriage and the family. My presentation is directed to honoring the truth about marriage as God established it from the beginning, and as our Lord Jesus Christ restored it to its original dignity. It is my hope that it will contribute to our fruitful discussion. The presentation is centered around certain critical canonical questions raised by the recent work of the Synod of Bishops. Inasmuch as canonical discipline exists to safeguard and promote the sacred realities of our life in Christ in the Church, the questions treated will, I trust, help us all to see more clearly our mission on behalf of marriage and the family. The Instrumentum Laboris and the Matrimonial Nullity Process. The Instrumentum Laboris for the 14th General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops, dedicated to the discussion of the topic, the vocation and mission of the family in the church and the contemporary world, issued on June 23rd of this year, describes a position regarding the matrimonial nullity process which was taken by a certain portion of the Synod Fathers at the October 2014 session of the Synod of Bishops. 
the third extraordinary General Assembly dedicated to a discussion of the pastoral challenges of the family in the context of evangelization. The position was taken in view of providing a means to rectify the situation of persons in an irregular matrimonial union, that is, the faithful who are divorced and have attempted marriage, so that they may receive the sacraments of penance and the Holy Eucharist. The Instrumentum Laboris reproduces not only the text of the Relatio Synodi, the final report of the October 2014 session, but also the results of a process of reflection and study on the part of the Universal Church inspired by a series of questions integrated into the final report. The Instrumentum Laboris describes itself with these words. The Instrumentum Laboris is comprised of the definitive text of the Relatio Synodi, to which a summary of the responses, observations, and scholarly contributions have been incorporated. The responses, observations, and contributions constitute the results of the reflection on the final report and the just mentioned questions. To clarify, the responses were received from the synods of Eastern Catholic Churches, sui juris, the Episcopal Conferences, the Dicasteries of the Roman Curia, and the Union of Sip Superiors General. The observations were received from individuals, families, and groups. Recommendations were received from universities, academic institutions, research centers, and individual scholars through symposia, conferences, and publications. The part of the Instrumentum Laboris regarding the matrimonial nullity process is found in Chapter 3, The Family and Accompaniment by the Church, in a section subtitled, Streamlining the Annulment Procedure and the Importance of Faith in Cases of Nullity. It is comprised of two numbers, numbers 114 and 115. Number 114 is number 48 of the Relatio Synodi and reads, a great number of synod fathers emphasize the need to make the procedure in cases of nullity more accessible and less time consuming, and if possible, at no expense. They proposed, among others, the dispensation of the requirement of second instance for confirming sentences, the possibility of establishing an administrative means under the jurisdiction of the diocesan bishop, and a simple process to be used in cases where nullity is clearly evident. Some synod fathers, however, were opposed to these proposals because they felt that they would not guarantee a reliable judgment. In all these cases, the Synod Fathers emphasized the primary character of ascertaining the truth about the validity of the marriage bond. Among other proposals, the role which faith plays in persons who marry could possibly be examined in ascertaining the validity of the sacrament of matrimony. 
all the while maintaining that the marriage of two baptized Christians is always a sacrament. Number 115 describes the results of the reflection on the just-quoted synodal proposition. It notes, I quote, a strong agreement on the appropriateness, the English translation official says, on the opportunity of making annulment procedures for marriage more accessible. But the, the word in Italian is opportunità, but that means appropriateness. The translation, I must say, uh, is not all that laudable. Uh, less the annulment procedures for marriage more accessible, less time-consuming, and possibly free of charge." End of quote. Regarding the requirement of a double-conforming sentence for the execution of a declaration of nullity, it notes that a significant number are in favor of eliminating it, yet leaving the possibility of appeal to the defender of the bond or either of the parties concerned. In the matter of the proposed administrative process to be conducted by the diocesan bishop or his priest to delegate, the document indicates a lack of consensus. It also notes that a significant number agree on the possible use of the summary process in canon law in clear cases of nullity. Finally, it comments on the question of the faith necessary in order to give valid matrimonial consent. It comments, and I quote, that most agreed on the importance of faith, of the faith of those to be married and suggested a variety of approaches to be examined further. In addressing the instrumentum laboris as a means of preparing ourselves for the in imminent 14th General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops, the discussion of these disciplinary questions will be most helpful. In fact, in the wake of the understandable anxiety regarding a betrayal of church doctrine, which the Third Extraordinary General Assembly sustained, the proponents of change have responded that they are not proposing a change in church doctrine, but only in her discipline. It seems reasonable to conclude that, these, that those proposed disciplinary changes are a central goal of the work of the 14th General Assembly. In order to take up fruitfully the discussion of the two principal proposed disciplinary changes, the so-called streamlining of the process for the declaration of nullity of marriage, and the examination of the relationship of the degree of faith of the parties, and the validity of their matrimonial consent, I treat clearly certain general considerations. It is my hope that the examination of these considerations will give a solid foundation to the discussion of the proposed disciplinary changes. In the course of treating the general considerations, the elements are found for the just response to the disciplinary proposals indicated in the Instrumentum Laboris. The nature of the Synod of Bishops and the question of the marriage nullity process. First of all, it should be clear that the Synod of Bishops has no authority to alter the process established in the 1983 Code of Canon Law and carefully articulated in the Vade Mecum Dignitas Conubi approved by Pope St. John Paul II on November 8, 2004, 
and published on January 25, 2005 by the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts. Oftentimes in popular presentations of the work of the Synod of Bishops, the impression is given that the Church's teaching and practice will be altered by a majority vote of the Synod Fathers. But the Synod of Bishops has no authority to change doctrine and discipline. The nature and purpose of the Synod of Bishops is described in Canon 342 of the Code of Canon Law, which I now read. The Synod of Bishops is a group of bishops who have been chosen from different regions of the world and meet together at fixed times to foster closer unity between the Roman Pontiff and bishops, to assist the Roman Pontiff with their counsel in the preservation and growth of faith and morals, and in the observance and strengthening of ecclesiastical discipline and to consider questions pertaining to the activity of the church in the world. The Synod of Bishops is not convened by the Roman Pontiff to suggest changes in the doctrine and discipline of the church, but rather to assist the Roman Pontiff in safeguarding and promoting sound doctrine regarding faith and morals, and in strengthening the discipline by which the truths of the faith are lived in practice. Given the nature of the Synod of Bishops and the nature of the process for the Declaration of Nullity of Marriage as it has developed along the Christian centuries, one must honestly ask what weight can be given to the suggested, alter suggested alterations of the process apart from a careful study of the process itself, both in terms of the persons who conduct the process the judges, the defender of the bond, the advocates, the notaries, and so forth, and the individual elements of the process itself. It must be further noted that such a careful study is greatly hindered by the loss of respect for canonical discipline in the post-conciliar period, which Blessed Pope, John, Blessed Pope Paul VI and Pope St. John Paul II labored tirelessly to repair but from which the church continues to suffer. One of the most damaging effects of the post-conciliar antinomianism is a lack of a general canonical culture among the clergy and the lack of a sufficient number of clergy and laity who are well prepared in canonical studies in accord with the perennial tradition of canonical discipline from apostolic times. The risk of sentimentalism. Reflecting upon the situations of profound suffering in families which find themselves outside of the context of the truth of Christ, there is the risk of falling into a sentimentalism which, while it seems compassionate, is deeply harmful because of its lack of respect for the objective situation of the persons involved. Such sentimentalism blocks the encounter with Christ on the part of the person who is in sin, for it sees the truth of Christ as something hurtful to the person and thus does not speak the truth, which is the only way for the person in his time to abandon the sin in question. Sentimentalism also fails to respect the profound effect of the irregular situation of the person on so many other persons bound to him 
or her by relationships of family or friendship. Concentrating ourselves exclusively on the painful situation of the individual, we do not see reality in its integrity and thus bring about injustice not only to the individual, but to the others bound to him or her. One must ask the question whether sentimentalism or a false compassion has inspired the suggestions to modify radically the process for the declaration of nullity of marriage so that the parties in a cause can receive more easily and more rapidly such a declaration. In his presentation to the Extraordinary Consistory of October of 2014, Cardinal Walter Casper asserted that the process for the declaration of nullity is not of divine law and therefore could be radically altered. He suggested an administrative process, for example, a meeting of the bishop or a priest delegated by the bishop with a party who is accusing the nullity of his marriage on the basis of which the bishop would declare the nullity of the marriage. While it is true that the process in its individual elements is not of divine law, a process adapted to discover the truth regarding a claim of nullity of marriage is required by divine law. The actual process is the fruit of the many centuries of the church's experience in the just treatment of an accusation of nullity of marriage, and as the venerable Pope Pius XII masterfully illustrated in his address to the Roman Rota of October 2, 1944, it is comprised of various elements adapted to the discovery of the truth of the situation of marriage breakdown, which normally is quite complex. Even as the Relatio Synodi indicated, and I quote, in all these cases, the Synod Fathers emphasized the primary character of ascertaining the truth about the marriage, the validity of the marriage bond. As I explained in my contribution to remaining in the truth of Christ, marriage and communion in the Catholic Church, to alter the actual process for the declaration of nullity of marriage without respect for its historical development risks taking away the process from the process the possibility of arriving at a just conclusion, a judgment given with moral certitude according to the truth discovered by means of the process. I must comment briefly that the language used in the Synod document which continuously refers to ascertaining the truth about the validity of the marriage bond is inaccurate. The process is devoted to ascertaining the truth of the claim of the nullity of the marriage bond, and those are two quite distinct uh, processes. The proposal of an administrative process for the declaration of the nullity of marriage conducted by the diocesan bishop or his delegate is unreasonable. It requires the bishop or his delegate to reach a most grave decision without providing for him the necessary elements to reach the decision. The proposal, in fact, was first advanced by the late Monsignor Stephen Kelleher 
In his presentation at the International Convention organized by the Pontifical Commission for the Revision of the Code of Canon Law in May of 1968, the proposal over the many years of discussions in the preparation of the 1983 Code of Canon Law was never accepted. The relationship between faith and culture. In the discussion of holy matrimony in the current situation, it is important to have a correct understanding of the rapport between faith and culture. Many times during the discussions before the first assembly of the synod, during the sessions of the assembly, and in this time of the preparation for the second assembly, it has been declared that the church must update its practice and above all its language in order to address herself effectively to a totally secularized culture. Some have gone so far as to assert that the church can no longer speak of the natural law, intrinsically evil acts, irregular unions, and so forth. Their point is that the language itself already makes the culture hostile. However, doing so, the church gives the impression of wanting to draw near to the culture, but without a clear identity of her own self and of what she has to say to the culture. According to divine wisdom, the church must always speak the truth with love. Yes, the church should go to the peripheries of today's culture, but always secure in her identity manifesting the greatest compassion which necessarily involves respect for the truth of the cultural situation, which many times is marked by confusion and error regarding the most fundamental truths of human life and its cradle, which is the family. The church has to call things by their proper name in order not to risk contributing to the confusion and error instead of bringing it to light and order. Honest people who live in such a culture have a thirst for the truth and for its proclamation with charity. To encounter the protagonists of such a culture without manifesting the truth of Christ with clear words would constitute a grave lack of charity. The gospel tells us that when Christ met the people, he found them to be like sheep without a shepherd, and he, that he therefore instructed them. We think also of his meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob, or with the woman discovered in open adultery. The Lord was full of understanding for their sinful situation. He pardoned them but at the same time, he was attentive to indicate to them the necessity of leaving a life of sin, the necessity of sinning no more. The relationship between doctrine and discipline. In what regards the canonical process for the declaration of nullity of marriage, it is frequently said that changes in the process can be introduced without affecting in any manner the integrity of the doctrine on the indissolubility of marriage. But it is evident that an inadequate process for arriving at the truth regarding a marriage accused of nullity would bring with it 
a lack of due respect for the indissolubility of holy matrimony. In fact, in the United States of America, from 1971 to 1983, a very modified process with a diminution of the figure of the defender of the bond and the effective elimination of the double agreeing sentence was permitted by the Holy See. With time, and not without reason, the process for the declaration of nullity of marriage became popularly known as Catholic divorce. In other words, in the common perception, while the church was declaring the indissolubility of marriage in its teaching, in its practice, it was permitting parties held to a marriage bond to marry another person without having first demonstrated the nullity of the earlier marriage bond. I served for many years at the Apostolic Signatura, first as defender of the bond from 1989 to 1995, and then as prefect from 2008 until November of last year. In a consistent manner, the experience of the Apostolic Signatura shows that when a matrimonial tribunal has well-prepared staff, the causes proceed without unjustified delays. At the same time, a process to reach a decision in so important and delicate a matter, the salvation of the souls involved, has of necessity its proper times for gathering the proofs, for examining them, and at the end, for giving a judgment with moral certitude. With sadness, many times I have seen that the diocesan bishop has not sufficiently taken care to prepare well the necessary personnel for his tribunal. In other words, it is not the process that has need of modifications, but the practice of some bishops who do not provide well-prepared and just workers for their tribunals. Here I comment briefly on the proposal of a simple process to be used in cases where nullity is clearly evident, presented in the Relatio Sinodi. In fact, the Code of Canon Law provides the documentary process with its appropriate speed in, in such cases. For example, a case of a person who attempted a marriage when he was already bound to a pre-existing marriage. Confidence in the natural law and in the grace of matrimony. Confronting the situations, the sufferings of individual persons and of families, the church should not lose its confidence in the natural law inscribed in every human heart and in its full expression in the saving work of our Lord. In our culture, there is a confusion about the meaning of human sexuality, which is bearing the fruit of profound personal unhappiness. It often leads to the breakup of marriage, to the corruption of children and young people, and ultimately to self-destruction. Disordered sexual activities, sexual activity outside of marriage, and the media's false yet constant and powerful messages regarding our identity as man and woman are all signs of the urgent need of a new evangelization which begins in marriages, in families, 
and through marriages reaches the entire culture. There is need of the witness to the distinct gifts of man and of woman who both dispose themselves to the service of Christ and of his mystical body by means of a chaste life. Christian marriage is the first place of such necessary witness in our culture. By means of a sound family life, our culture will be transformed. Without sound family life, the culture will not ever be transformed. In the life of holy couples, we see reflected all of the splendor of the truth about the union of a man and a woman in faithful, enduring, and procreative love. In their life, we see above all the truth of the teaching of Christ in response to the Pharisees who were putting him to the test, posing the question of the possibility of divorce. The Lord responded to the Pharisees, teaching the observance of the eternal law according to which God the Father created man and woman. Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. When the disciples asked about the great exigency of the divine law for spouses, the Lord responded that with the vocation to the married life, God grants in abundance the grace to live such faithful, enduring, and procreative love. Not all men can receive this precept, but only those to whom it is given. Father Paul Mankowski, at the conclusion of his essay on the Holy Scriptures, in the book, Remaining in the Truth of Christ, Marriage and Communion in the Catholic Church, affirms, yet it is mistaken, if not wholly mistaken, seriously incomplete, to view Jesus as a disputant who championed the rigorous side of legal moral controversy, and whose appeal was and is solely to the tough-minded. For he also promised a new and superabundant afflatus of grace, of divine help, so that no person, however fragile, should find it impossible to do God's will. It is this objective reality which St. Paul celebrates in the letter to the Ephesians with these inspired words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference 
to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Natural law and the formation of the conscience in the family. So often today, a notion of, of tolerance, of ways of thinking and acting, contrary to the moral law, seems to be the interpretive key for many Christians. Today's popular notion of tolerance is not securely grounded in the moral tradition, yet it tends to dominate our approach to the extent that we end up claiming to be Christian while tolerating ways of thinking and acting which are diametrically opposed to the moral law revealed to us in nature and in the sacred scriptures. The approach at times becomes so relativistic and subjective that we do not even observe the fundamental logical principle of non-contradiction, that is, that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time. In other words, certain actions cannot at the same time be both true to the moral law and not true to it. In fact, charity alone must be the interpretive key of our thoughts and actions. In the context of charity, tolerance means unconditional love of the person who is involved in evil, but complete abhorrence of the evil into which the person has fallen. Fundamental to the Catholic life of virtue is the understanding of human nature and conscience. Critical to the deplorable cultural situation in which we find ourselves is the loss of a sense of nature and of conscience. Pope Benedict XVI addressed the question of the loss of a sense of nature and conscience with respect to the foundations of law in his address to the Bundestag during his pastoral visit to Germany in September of 2011. Pope Benedict XVI then asked how we know the good and right which the political order and specifically the law are to safeguard and promote. While he acknowledged that in many matters the support of the majority can serve as a sufficient criterion, he observed that such a principle is not sufficient for the fundamental issues of law in which the dignity of man and of humanity is at stake. Regarding the very foundations of the life of society, positive civil law must respect nature and reason as the true sources of law. In other words, one must have recourse to the natural moral law which God has inscribed upon every human heart. It would be naive not to see the connection between the discussion of permitting those who are living publicly in adultery to receive the sacraments of penance and the Holy Eucharist and the discussion of admitting those who are living publicly in other grave sins to receive the sacraments. Underlying the discussion are certain philosophical presuppositions which time does not permit me to elaborate. Those presuppositions which deny metaphysics and therefore the notion of man's enduring nature as constituted by God from the beginning are historicist and relativist in nature. 
I refer you to the essay of Professor Thomas Heinrich Stark on the philosophical underpinnings of the theological thought of Cardinal Walter Casper. Natural marriage and sacramental marriage. Nature herself teaches us about marriage, the leaving of home by a man and a woman in order that they may, with the help of God, form a new home. They leave their proper families to become one flesh to form a new family. What nature teaches us, what is written on every human heart, is likewise inscribed in the bodies of man and woman. The same truth revealed in nature is also revealed in the sacred scriptures and taught by the magisterium. There can be, in fact, no contradiction between what God has revealed through nature and what he has revealed through his inspired word. There can no, be, be no conflict between nature and grace, which both have their origin in God, which both reflect his truth, beauty, and goodness, in which he has given his creatures a share. Man, above every other earthly creature, participates in the being of God, in his truth, beauty, and goodness. For God has created man, male and female, in his own image and likeness. The natural sacrament of marriage, instituted by God from the beginning, suffered the effects of original sin from which Christ has saved us by his redemptive incarnation. Recall how the first manifestation of the fallen state of Adam and Eve was their shame before one another. The second person of the Holy Trinity, by taking our human nature, purified and elevated matrimony, raising it to the dignity of a sacrament in order that spouses could more readily and fully live in accord with God's plan from them, for them from the beginning. Monsignor Cormac Burke explains, marriage is a natural reality and part of God's creation. At its institution, God endowed it with its essential natural characteristics, a union between one man and one woman, which is exclusive, permanent, and open to life. A union between two persons which lacks or excludes any one of these characteristics is not a true marriage in any natural sense. In the new dispensation, and therefore within a Christian theological view, Marriage between baptized persons is also a supernatural reality, a sacrament. At the same time, it is part of Catholic teaching that when marriage is raised to the sacramental level, its natural or human reality is not taken away. On the contrary, sacramental marriage retains all of its natural properties. The adjective natural applied to marriage can have two senses. It can either refer to the beauty and integrity of marriage from the beginning, as God created man or woman, or it can refer to the fallen nature of man, to the effects of original sin, which make it more difficult for the married to live the truth of their conjugal union. The catechesis on the sacramental grace conferred on the spouses is key to addressing the present-day confusion within the church. 
In a totally secularized society, the tendency is to view marriage from a purely natural point of view in the sense of fallen nature, and then to reduce the teaching of Christ on holy matrimony to the expression of an ideal which is impossible for most to attain. But Christ, faithful to his promise, remains always with us in the church. He never ceases to pour forth in abundance divine grace into our hearts so that we can live in him in every fiber of our being in every dimension of our lives. Our catechesis on marriage is centered on the reply of Christ to one of the many attempts of the Pharisees to trap him, namely their argument that Moses permitted divorce and remarriage. The catechesis centered on the teaching of Christ is accompanied by his grace to live the truth set forth in his teaching. The marriage contract is by nature sacred, having been established by God as the natural means of uniting a man and woman and of procreating and educating his sons and daughters. Thus, even before Christ raised holy matrimony to the dignity of a sacrament, marriage always involved not only the two partners, but also God as the author of marriage. For this reason, the marriage contract is also called a covenant to indicate how from its institution at the beginning of human history, it typifies both the covenant between God and the entire human race, and in particular, the covenant between Christ and the church. This is what is meant when marriage is called a natural sacrament. What must be clear is that the elevation of a legitimate marriage to a sacrament does not constitute a new contract for the spouses. The marriage continues to be constituted by their original act of marital consent. Neither does the validity of the marriage consent of the baptized depend upon the degree of their faith in the sacrament of holy matrimony. It has been suggested that many marriages are null because of a lack of faith or a lack of sufficient faith in the sacrament of holy matrimony. While such a lack may mean that one or both of the parties do not respond as fully as possible to the grace of the sacrament, it certainly does not render the marriage null. Monsignor Cormac Burke writes, sacramentality as applied to marriage nevertheless escapes easy classification. At times it is referred to as if it were a component of matrimony, some sort of spiritual thing added to marriage to make it Christian, but this is not the case. Nor is it an element or property, however essential, of matrimony. It is rather a supernatural force that permeates and vivifies each and every one of the natural elements and properties of marriage, raising them to the order of supernatural meaning and efficacy. It coincides with marriage itself, which by the fact of baptism has been inserted into the economy of salvation. Clearly it is faith and baptism which cause marriage to be sacramental. Marriage is sacramental when the parties are alive in Christ through baptism. Pope John Paul II and Familiaris Consortio taught us, by means of baptism, man and woman are definitively placed within the new and eternal covenant in the spousal covenant of Christ with the church. 
and it is because of this indestructible insertion that the intimate community of conjugal life and love founded by the Creator is elevated and assumed into the spousal charity of Christ, sustained by his redeeming power. I'm going to cut short now of the further discussion of this very important uh, topic because the time is running out. The liturgical rite of marriage and the favor of the law. In the current discussion regarding holy matrimony, and in particular its intrinsic indissolubility, it is frequently asserted that a great percentage of marriages are surely null. The reason given is the highly secularized culture in which we live. Secularization denies the natural law which teaches us that marriage is a faithful, enduring, and procreative union, that it is faith, a faithful and enduring union between one man and one woman. The argument is that many parties who exchange marriage consent today do not understand what they are consenting and therefore exclude from their consent one or more of the essential goods of marriage, unity, indissolubility, and procreativity. Given the pervasive practice of no-fault divorce in particular, it is asserted that many parties affected by what is called the divorcist mentality exclude by a positive act of the will the indissolubility or permanence of the marriage bond. Whereas in the church's discipline, marriage always enjoys the favor of the law, that is, that consent is presumed to be valid unless the contrary is proven with moral certitude, some today would hold that marriage consent in as many as 50% of cases can be presumed to be null or invalid. The first argument, in fact, against the presumption of nullity of marriage consent is human nature itself, is, is the law which God has written on every human heart. No one denies that the culture has a negative effect on the giving of true matrimonial consent and on the living of the consent in practice, but that does not mean that young people today do not understand what marriage truly is and desire it in itself. To assert that they do not know the natural moral law is in fact to deny human nature, which teaches the truth about life, about marriage as the cradle of human life, and about our relationship with God, which expresses itself in worship of him. A second strong argument in the case of Catholics and non-Catholics who celebrate their marriages according to the rite of marriage in the Roman ritual is the reflection of the truth about marriage in sacred worship, and in particular, in the rite of marriage. According to the ancient wisdom expressed by Prosper of Aquitaine, the law of praying establishes the law of believing. In other words, the truth of the faith finds its highest and most perfect expression in the sacred liturgy. It is difficult then to comprehend how one can celebrate liturgically the sacrament of holy matrimony without understanding and intending the truth which finds its highest and most perfect expression in the liturgical rite. It is particularly important to consider the truth about marriage as it, ex as it is expressed in the sacred liturgy, and in particular in the rite of marriage of the Roman ritual. 
apart from the introduction, which is called the Prenotanda of the Rite of Marriage, which underlines clearly and thoroughly the Church's constant teaching regarding marriage, the central elements of the rite all manifest the great truth of marriage. They are the liturgy of the word with the required homily of the priest or deacon, the questioning of the parties regarding their intention and the actual exchange of consent before God and his minister, the priest or deacon, the nuptial blessing, and the participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice and the reception of its incomparable fruit, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. The sacred liturgy is the greatest teacher of the truth about marriage and therefore a safeguard against an invalid celebration of the sacrament of holy matrimony through the exclusion of one of the essential goods of marriage. A note on a penitential path. Time does not permit a thorough discussion of the penitential path which is discussed in Numbers 122 and 123 of the Instrumentum Laboris. In fact, the penitential path has not been part of the canonical discipline of the Latin Church and, in fact, seems to be a version of what has been the practice of the Orthodox Churches. The Relatio Synodi number 122 of the Instrumentum Laboris describes it as, I quote, a more individualized approach permitting access to, this, access to the sacraments of penance and the Holy Eucharist in certain well-defined conditions, primarily in irreversible situations and those involving moral obligations towards children who would have to endure unjust suffering. The penitential path suffers from all of the difficulties with which the practice of the Orthodox churches suffers. In that regard, I refer to the outstanding study of Archbishop Cyril Vazel, Secretary of the Congregation for the Oriental Churches, which can also be found in the book Remaining in the Truth of Christ, Marriage and Communion in the Catholic Church. It is difficult to see how it honors the truth enunciated by Christ regarding those who are divorced and, divorced and attempt marriage. It is also to dif difficult to see how it is penitential, for it excludes the firm purpose of amendment which is essential to penance. Finally, the notion of irreversible situations is difficult to relate to the grace given to the married. And without in any way diminishing the pain of children in such, such situations, their suffering is not unjust in the sense that it is the result of the irregular situation of their parents. To conclude, we live in a time when the fundamental truth of marriage is under a ferocious, indeed, I would not hesitate to say, a diabolical attack, which seeks to obscure and sully the sublime truth of the married state as God intended it from the creation. Marital infidelity, divorce, and contraception are sadly commonplace today. And now society has gone even further in its affront to God and his law by claiming the name of marriage for liaisons between persons of the same sex. Even within the church, there are those who would obscure the truth of the indissolubility of marriage 
in the name of mercy, who would condone the violation of the conjugal union by means of contraception in the name of pastoral understanding, and who in the name of tolerance would remain silent about the attack on the very integrity of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. There are even those who deny that the married receive a particular grace to live heroically in faithful, enduring, and life-giving love, while our Lord himself has assured us that God gives to the married the grace to live daily in accord with the truth of their state in life. The mission of the Synod on the family is clear the limpid and heroic witness to the splendor of the truth about marriage. The Synod Fathers and all faithful Christians must be ready to suffer as Christians have suffered down the ages to honor and foster holy matrimony. St. John the Baptist, St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More who were martyrs in defending the integrity of the fidelity and indissolubility of marriage, show us the way <clears throat> and assure us of the ultimate victory of Christ. Before the confusion and error about holy matrimony, which Satan is sowing so widely in society and the church, let us invoke their intercession for the synod on the family, so that the great gift of married life and love will be evermore revered in the church and in society. Thank you very much for your kind attention.